And so if you will, we'd like to read verses 1 through 4. I know that we read these last time, but it's always good to read God's Word again to bring us back to where we were a few weeks ago. So if you'll please stand if you can, and let's read verses 1 through 4 of Acts chapter 15. And as we do every Sunday, let's read together and let's read aloud. Acts 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we give you thanks and praise for the very special privilege that we have today of coming before your throne of grace to obtain your mercy and to find grace for help in time of need. But Lord, what a blessing it is for us to have the freedom to open our Bibles, to read your word, to read it publicly, to read it out loud, and to study it today that we might show ourselves approved unto you, workmen that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing your word. May you help us to understand your word. Anoint us and bless us and fill us now with your Holy Spirit. Grant us, O God, the wisdom that you want us to have concerning your word in these days and times in which we live. May they be ingrained in our hearts and in our minds so that we ourselves, Lord God, will live our lives with the stamp of Christ upon us unto the day of Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. There are, I'm sure, a number of questions that believers in Jesus Christ should ask themselves every so often concerning the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Certainly we are to make those periodic spiritual examinations, as Paul has exhorted us in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, when he writes, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? Or do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you're disqualified. But the first part of that verse, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith and test yourselves. Now this is an important thing. It is is an important part of our devotional life as believers in Jesus Christ. But there is one question. There is one question that needs to be asked from time to time. And especially in our day and age because of the tremendous attack on God's word today. And because of the tremendous attack on the spiritual and moral foundations of the church. And that one question that we want to ask today is, why is the truth of the gospel so important? Why is the truth of the gospel so important? Now most of us know that the the word gospel literally is defined as good news. 
comes from the Greek word evangelio or evangelio. And it just comes to mean good news, good tidings. And so, why is the truth of these good tidings so important? Well, time doesn't permit us to do an extensive word study, but suffice it to say that the Apostle Paul considered it an extremely and eternally important question to have a solid answer for. We as Christians need a solid answer for that question. Why is it so important to know and understand the gospel? In Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul gives us a little bit of an indication of this, of this importance. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. You can translate that as Jew first and also for the Gentile. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. It is here that Paul is announcing now his ensuing argument and his position. And that position is this, that salvation, the one overwhelming necessity of perishing men, is revealed in the gospel message. And that message so owned and honored of God as to carry in the proclamation of it, God's own power to save every soul that embraces it, whether Jew or Gentile, wise or unwise. That is the gospel message. It is a message that is owned by God, it is honored by God as to carry in the very proclamation of it. God's power to save every soul that embraces the message whether Jew or Gentile, whether wise or unwise. Now, Paul deals with the wise and unwise and the gospel when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20-25, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached, to save those who believe. And again, there is the message of the gospel preached to save those who will believe the message. Verse 22, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. This is the gospel. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, notice this, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now understand what Paul is saying there. Paul is not saying that God is foolish or that he's weak. But if God could be foolish, even his foolishness would be wiser than men. If God could be weak, which he isn't, and he never will be, but if God could be weak, then even the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the idea here is to understand the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to save those who believe. So later on then, in this very letter to the Corinthian church, Paul states the clear facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Here is the gospel. 
It begins first of all by him saying, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you receive. What does that tell you for just a moment? Think about this. It tells us that they have already heard the message, but what is he doing? He's reiterating. He is going over it again. This is something that we as Christians that need to do. We need to read and study and reread and restudy and reunderstand and re-know the things that God has given us for us to know about him, about our salvation, and what we are to do in sharing that gospel with other people. So, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now notice what he says. Verse 3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. So, he gives them what he received as far as the gospel. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. What scriptures? The Hebrew scriptures. Something that had already been predicted hundreds if not thousands of years before. And then it says, and that he was seen by Cephas, who is Peter, and then by the twelve. And so the facts of the gospel are clear. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Let me add one more thing. When he ends with, in verse 5 of this passage, he says, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve, also tells us that the gospel is to be witnessed. That the very things that were witnessed of Christ is to be proclaimed. So the gospel is not only to be known, it is to be proclaimed. What is it? The, bear, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that important to lay down this foundation today before we enter into our study of this chapter? Some of you might be saying, listen, three weeks ago you went over some of this ground already. That's okay. doesn't hurt us to hear it again. Okay. All right. Good. Right. Doesn't hurt. <laughs> but think about the question. Why is it important to lay down this foundation before we enter into the study of this chapter, and why is the truth of the gospel so important? That's our main question. Let me give you a very simple answer. Simply. Because Satan had an answer to Paul's evangelism. Satan had an answer to Paul's evangelism and presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was, and here's the answer, it was... And it still is to paralyze the church with inward strife. To paralyze the church with inward strife. For professed believers to direct their energy against other believers, whether in trivial matters or as the case was, over matters of eternal consequence. It was not the time then, and it is not the time now, to quibble over minute matters while the serious issues of God's truth in the area of salvation are being treated as non-essential by some and erroneous by others, those of the legalistic mindset. We're not to quibble. I'm going to bring up a little term some of you have heard. And in some cases it does apply. And, 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 and just, it just has to do with, with the fact that we can agree to disagree. You've heard that. Well, we can agree to disagree on certain matters. Honestly, that's, that's true. On certain matters we can. 
but not on the issues of salvation, not on the issues of the gospel, not on the issues of the word of God. And this is what the problem is in the church today, that there is so much squibbling and, and, and you know, squawking and, you know, about one little thing or one other thing or this and that. And then when it comes to the issues of the gospel, people say, well, we can agree to disagree. No, we can't. We cannot. We need to take a stand for the truth. Paul and Barnabas were called to take a stand against the narrow, the legalistic, and the senseless teachings of certain men. This is what we studied last time. Not authorized. These people were not authorized or sent by the church in Jerusalem, though they came from the church in Jerusalem. That would be like a lot of people today going out, out from here, just using, you know, well, I go to Calvary Chapel and this is what, this is what we teach, and then go and give them all kinds of false doctrine. Don't, don't use my name and don't use our name if you're going to lie. But if you're going to teach the gospel, then teach it from the scriptures, because that's what we're going to do here. But we have to take a stand. But these people were not authorized. These certain men came uh, to the church in Antioch, and, and they began to promote a different gospel. It is a gospel that Paul says is not another. In other words, there's only one true gospel. He writes in Galatians chapter 1, and this is review from last time, but in Galatians chapter 1, he writes in verses 6 through 8, I marvel, Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. He says, it's not another gospel. This isn't a pick and choose type thing here. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than, than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And by the way, verse 9 says the very same thing. Twice he gives that curse. And that's what it is really when you think about it. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. Because there's only one gospel. And that's the gospel we have to be faithful to present, faithful to give, faithful to proclaim. So let's look again then, in review at the very first two verses of our text, with all of this as a foundation to the understanding of the gospel. Verses 1 and 2, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Now, I know we, we, we spent a good deal about, uh, about this issue of circumcision and, and, and then the law last time, so order the tape, or CD now. I forget, we don't have tapes now, we have CDs. We're moving into the 21st century. And even then, I think that CDs are like behind, you know, everything that's happening. Get on our website, we have podcasts. Wow. <laughs> But get to, you know, Acts 15, verse 1. All right. Because you need, you need that as foundational here. But here it is. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. Now, I, what, you know what that tells me? When it says they had no small dissension, it tells me they had a big dissension and dispute. It was a major issue. It was a major deal that Paul and Barnabas had to deal with these guys coming from Judea and preaching this false gospel. So when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. The wonderful thing about that verse, and that part of the verse is, that they weren't going alone. They were going with people who had heard and had witnessed and could give testimony to back Paul and Barnabas up where two or more are gathered in his name. 
You see, we need to give witness and testimony to what has been seen. So it wouldn't then become, you know, he said, you said, we said, you said, they said, whatever. It is something that can be attested to. So Paul and Barnabas were not going to abandon the work they had seen God do so powerfully through the Gentiles. So their immediate response was the defense of the faith. In this we see that Paul and Barnabas had the hearts of true shepherds. Because they were to confront error and that's what they did. Their heart as a true shepherd was to confront error, disputing with those who persist on promoting false doctrines among the body of Christ. Now, when their persuasion didn't end the debate, Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem to have this matter resolved by the apostles and the elders there. Now, this issue, let me say this, strongly, this issue was not a matter of agreeing to disagree. It was at the very core of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It is at the very core of our salvation. To have this right, and it cannot be a matter of, well, you can believe what you want. No. So, this issue is still important today. We've talked about all of these deceptions coming into these last days. You know, Jesus talked about it. You know what? Jesus was the one who said in the last days, there will be perilous times in the sense that there is going to be a lot of deception. That even if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. Isn't that interesting? This issue is important today. Because people are trying to water down the word of God. They're trying to water down the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're trying to say that, you know, you can, you can actually, there's so many roads to God. There's only one way. Jesus said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John 14, 6. So I'm not going to dispute with Jesus. And we shouldn't. And we shouldn't have to. We can stand on that. And so, it's an important issue. And so, they were sent by the church in Antioch to Jerusalem. So look at verses 3 and 4. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. These were churches early established uh, in in the movement of, of, of the gospel from Jerusalem. Phoenicia and and Samaria. So in describing the conversion of the Gentiles to them, notice what it says, they caused great joy to the brethren. Great joy to all the brethren. They were excited that the gospel had come to the Gentiles now. And, And so they were rejoicing. We rejoice. Listen, in this church we rejoice when one soul is saved. We should rejoice. We'd love to see many souls saved. Many souls come to Christ. Why? Because there, there, there is that, that receiving of the truth of the Lord in a life. We see somebody who lived in darkness now come to the light of the Lord. We, we see the changes in their lives. We've gone through the change. We rejoice with them. And then if it is Gentiles who had been pagans, you know, worshiping heathens, you know, hey, even better. So they're rejoicing. And when they had come to Jerusalem, when they finally arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all things that God had done with them. They gave testimony. Isn't it a great thing that there was no gag order on Paul? They, They say, Paul, you can't say this. You can't say that. You can't go here. You can't go there. You can't do this. You can't do that. 
Paul says, I'm reporting you what happened. And this is what God did. This is what the Lord did in our ministry. So along the way, just in t- t- uh, taking these two verses, and along the way they found many Christians who rejoiced at what God had done among the Gentiles, eventually reporting to the Jerusalem congregation and leadership everything, everything that the Lord had done with them. But however, it wasn't long before some converted Pharisees rose up out of the assembly in Jerusalem. Look at verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up. Now let's, let's stop there and just think about this, this statement. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed. These were actually Pharisees who had come to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ, that He was Messiah, that He rose from the dead, and that He was who He said He was. And so they they had come to Christ. There's no doubt about that. But they rose up at this meeting and they said, notice what they said. It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, we know that if the Pharisees believed anything, they believed that a person could be justified before God by keeping the law. I mean, a just plain old good old boy Pharisee believed that. They believed that a person could be justified before God by keeping the law. That's what they lived their lives for. Pharisees were, you know, focused on the law, keeping every jot and tittle of the law. But for the Pharisee to really be a Christian, it was going to take more than just an acknowledgement that Jesus was Messiah. He was going to need to forsake his attempts at justifying himself by keeping of the law and accepting the work of Jesus as the basis of his justification. He needed to forsake those attempts at keeping the law and he needed to accept the works of Jesus as the basis of his justification. That's a lot for a Pharisee to have to do. I want you to remember something that Paul and Barnabas taught the people in Lystra as they were going through there and of course... You know, certain things happen, somebody's healed, and all the people thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods, you know. And so we pick up in Acts 14, verses 14 and 15, when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and they ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you, notice this, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. They couldn't, in other words, they were telling him, listen, we don't want you to take Jesus and add them to your Roman gods. That's not why we're here. We're here to tell you that you need to forsake your gods and come to the living God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, they couldn't just add Jesus to their list of Roman gods. They had to turn from their vain gods to the true and the living God. So what about the Pharisees? See, Paul understood this. Paul understood what you had to forsake. Paul was a former Pharisee. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 is part of his testimony. He says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day. I don't think that he remembered that. I think he just knew that that's what it was. That he was circumcised the eighth day because he was a good Jew of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, notice, a Pharisee. 
Why does he say concerning the law? Because that's what they concern themselves with. Concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I, as a Pharisee, kept every part of the laws, I thought. But then he says, but what things were gained to me? These I have counted loss for Christ. What was a gain to me as a Pharisee, I counted all a loss. I have turned, I've forsaken it all. For Christ. For Jesus Christ. It is this former Pharisee, no longer Pharisee, who says in Galatians chapter 2 verse 16, Listen to what he says. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And I like that, putting these two passages together, because you see in one place he says, I had confidence in my flesh. But I've come to realize... That no flesh shall be justified by the law. So the teaching of the Pharisees, as they are trying to teach the church here, the teaching of the Pharisees was that Gentiles were free to come to Jesus, but they would have to come through the law of Moses in order to come to Jesus. And not only that, But since Israel had always been God's chosen people, then Gentiles must become part of Israel if they want to be part of God's people. And and, and you see, they may have used these passages to defend their position. Let me give them to you. Exodus 12, verses 48 and 49. Notice what it says. And when a stranger dwells with you... Who's a stranger? Anybody who's not a Jew. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord... Let all his males be circumcised. And then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. In other words, the Passover. One law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. So if they wanted to share in in honoring the, the God of Israel, they had to be circumcised. In Isaiah 56 verse 6, There's also this statement that says, also the sons of the foreigner, who's a foreigner? Anybody who's not a Jew. It says, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord, to serve Him, and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. My covenant includes circumcision. So this is their thought. This is their mindset. This is what the law says. So if they want to be a good Christian, they need to be a good Jew. But in the midst of this great dispute, another well-known apostle, and again, I want to draw your attention to the previous study so that you'll understand I, I said a little bit more about the circumcision then. But in the midst of this great dispute, another well-known apostle now is going to take the floor. By the way, he's a Jew. In Acts 15, verse 6, it says, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and he said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us 
that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, and notice this, so God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of, our Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. This last verse, verse 11 is an astounding statement by Peter. It is an amazing statement to me that he says to the Pharisees, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we, to whom the gospel has come first, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. I mean, it kind of turns it around here. But I think I understand why. Because the Gentiles weren't bound by the law. And they weren't bound by all these other things, you know, the, all of these ceremonial rites and things. So when they, when, when they got, received the message of the gospel, they said, that's what we need. And they were saved by grace through faith. So an interesting statement he says there. But going back and looking at this passage, one very important point to consider is that the church, first of all, came together to decide the issue. The church came together to decide the issue, not letting it just sit, not leaving it up to the conscience of every believer. Well, if you want to believe that, brother, go ahead, you know. I want to believe in circumstances, well, you know, you, you guys can do it, whatever. Well, it brings up a question here. The question is this, is the work of Jesus by itself enough? to save the person who trusts in Jesus? Is the work of Jesus by itself enough to save the person who trusts in Jesus? I tell you what, the Gentile believers would say yes, it's enough. Or must we add our work to Jesus' work in order to be saved? Because circumcision is our work if we were to do it. Do we have to add our work to make His work Justifiable. So Peter lays out a history lesson here. And he states the work, uh, you know, stating the work that the Lord had already done and fully receiving the Gentiles who believed apart from being circumcised. I want you to look at three things there if you go back to verse, uh, verse 8 and following. And three things that you need to see here. First of all, Peter says, God who knows the heart acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. God, who knows the heart, acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. If God, in other words, if God acknowledged them, then why shouldn't the church acknowledge them? You see the understanding of the statement. If God acknowledged the Gentiles, then why shouldn't the church? If God acknowledges the Gentiles in receiving Christ, then we should acknowledge them. We Jewish Christians, as, as far as what Peter is saying to them, then we should acknowledge them. God acknowledges them. Because He's the one that knows the heart, not you or me. God knows the heart. Secondly, He makes this statement, and made no distinction between us and them. 
He made no distinction between us and them. This is an important observation. Coming straight from the vision that Peter received of the clean and unclean animals in Acts chapter 10. In that issue with the house of Cornelius. I should not call any man common or unclean. That is what the Lord gave him by revelation. I shall not call any man common or unclean. Gentiles are not made clean, in other words, by, the, by submitting to the law of Moses. God made no distinction between us and them. Gentiles are not made clean by submitting to the law of Moses. Oh, by the way, Jews aren't made clean by submitting to the law of Moses either. And it's the next phrase that ties this all together. Purifying their hearts by faith. you all see that? Purifying their hearts by faith. In other words, their hearts are purified not by the keeping of the law, but by faith. If purified by faith, then there was no need to be purified by submitting to ceremonies found in the law of Moses. And this is being stated by a Jew. God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them. We should acknowledge them. God made no distinction between us and them. We're clean just like they're clean. The same way, by faith. And we're purified, not by the law, but by faith. So what the legalists were doing, in effect, was testing God by wanting the Gentiles to bear a yoke that they themselves weren't able to bear. And, and, and let me just say this, from beginning to end, Israel could not bear the yoke of the law. Every time they were given a law, every time they were told to stand upon the law, they would for a short time and then they would disobey it. Every time, even to this day, they cannot bear the yoke of the law. That's why the Lord has to come and save them. But the bottom line in all of this is that salvation, in fact, is all of grace and not of law. And that's not to say that law is not important. But understand that Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law. He fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, a passage that all of us need to memorize. We all need to memorize it as believers in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of ourselves. There are a lot of people today who want to kind of help God out. They want to say, you know, I know that God did most of the work. I did a little. I cleaned myself up a little. No, you didn't. God did it. You didn't have the power to. Even to this day, some people struggle. Struggle with sin. Struggle with issues. Struggle with things that, you know, in the past. And we have to keep coming to whom? Lord, help me. Well, that's because you can't do it yourself. But the important thing is, we can't save ourselves. And the only thing we bring to our salvation, I said this 
countless times. The only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin, and that's not a whole lot to be proud of. And then Paul gives this wonderful theological treatise in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26, when he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. In other words, if we look to the law, we realize not one of us has been able to keep it. And then it says, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now... The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what that says? All have sinned. Jew and Gentile, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What is grace? God's undeserved favor. Being justified freely by His undeserved favor through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, which means an atoning sacrifice, whom God set forth as an atoning sacrifice by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness. Is there any room for us in all of this? No. It's His grace. It's faith. It's His blood. It's His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Wow, we could spend hours just looking at that. Suffice it to say that we don't save ourselves. We've been justified by God's grace through faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, notice, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. In other words, we have been born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. Do any of us deserve this inheritance? No, it's undeserved favor. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, notice verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And this is a tremendous statement of letting us know that the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ it affects our past, our present, and our future. We were saved. We are being saved we will be saved. Here we see a little bit of the future. You are kept by the power of God, being saved, through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We will be saved. You've been saved. You're being saved. You will be saved. You're saved. To the uttermost, because of Jesus Christ. So taking a stand for the gospel and, the, and for truth in these last days, I know is not an easy thing. 
There is a tremendous need to remain vigilant, for the days are evil. They're filled with evil, they're filled with great deception. Even the very elect, if it were possible, could be deceived. But there is much comfort and help in keeping ourselves in the love of God, as as Jude points out in verse 20 and 21 of his letter. He says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and notice, on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Looking. You have to be vigilant. You have to be awake. We need to be awake today as believers in Jesus Christ. There is no need right now for a sleeping church. We need to be awake, vigilant, ready for the coming of Jesus. So we build ourselves up in the most holy faith. We pray in the Holy Spirit. We keep ourselves in the love of God. We look for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to remember, and I want to close with this thought. I want, to, I want you to remember Peter's admonition. Because next week we're going to deal with Peter and Paul in a situation that ties into this conflict resolution. As well as the writing of the book of Galatians. And we're going to talk about that next time as well. But, but just remember Peter's admonition in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. It begins by saying, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. Are you praying? Are you waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you looking for the coming of Christ? Are you praying in the Holy Spirit? Are you praying for God's guidance, God's direction? Are you praying for the wisdom to tell people about Jesus? Are you praying for the opportunities to let people know that Jesus is coming again? Are you praying for God to give you the courage to take a stand for the truth and for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you praying for these things? It's a serious matter, you see. Peter said 2,000 years ago, it's a serious matter then. It's a serious matter more now than ever. Because we are so close to the coming of Jesus Christ. So are we being serious? And by the way, in our seriousness, in our watchfulness, in our prayers, let me ask you this question. Are you living your life with the stamp of Christ? so that people will see Christ in you, the hope of glory. Are you living humbly and with grace? Are you living with that heart of gladness and joy that people can see that there's a difference in your life? I've got to tell you, that's, that's something that God really impressed on my heart these last couple of weeks being away. He's drawn me back to reading the stories of Jim Elliot, as written by Elizabeth Elliot, the journals of Jim Elliot, the missionary who was killed in Ecuador back in 1956, and realizing in some of the writings that he had, just reminding me, so I can remind you of what importance it is to live in the grace of Christ for the world to see that God didn't make us to be like the world we're to be like the kingdom of heaven oh we dress the same sometimes we 
You know, we live in this earth, but we're not of this earth. Are we being serious and watchful for the coming of the Lord? And are we letting people see the light of Christ's glory shine forth from our lives? Peter goes on and he says, and above all things. That's an important thing to say, above all things. In other words, really an important issue. Above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. You know, I have yet to find any church that has a grumbler's meeting. No, they don't call it that. It's just normally referred to as the business meeting. But they won't name it a grumbler's meeting. But we ought not to be grumbling. Be hospitable to one another with grumbling, uh, one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter really learned the importance of letting Christ rule and reign in his life. We need to learn the same. Because the issue of salvation is that important. The issue of the gospel is that important. Why is the truth of the gospel so important? Because lives are eternally at stake. Ours were... Had we not received the love of Christ and the salvation of Christ and the understanding that the blood of Christ forgives us, it was, the blood of Christ was shed for our forgiveness, where would we be right now? And what would be our future in eternity but separated from God for eternity? Today we rejoice, not arrogantly, but we rejoice humbly in the fact that we will stand before God for an eternity. And we don't want anyone to miss out on that blessing. Shall we pray?